since we already seem to be up to, oh, I don't know, about two dozen candidates for president in the United States, perhaps now is a good time to discuss what would legitimize their authority in the eyes of the people they govern. I'm Michael Spencer Horman, and you're listening to Real Philosophy, a show that argues all philosophy is vain until it gets real. Now, as you may have found out from the last episode, it's very important to clarify the question that you seek to answer. So when I ask, what forms the basis for rightful governing of the state, I don't necessarily mean a form of government. I also don't necessarily mean what characteristics make a good leader. What I'm trying to present and discuss in this episode is what forms the legitimate basis for someone holding power as a governor over a nation or a state or even a municipality. What actually undergirds their, I don't want to say popular support, because a lot of people who don't necessarily support a leader would also be willing to obey them. So I guess what is really at issue here is what allows people who are governed to be obedient willfully to an authority. Notice that qualification of willfully. Will is important. It may not always seem so, but historically speaking, evaluating different forms of government, different times and eras of leadership, eventually, even the most despotic and controlling leader loses control due to a lack of will on the part of the people over whom they govern. So, we're talking about today what allows people to willfully obey an authority over them. What is the basis for rightful governing of the state. Now, as you may remember from the intro episode, this is not a catch-all. This is not an attempt to promote one idea over the other. This is not a decision on the part of me to say, what do I believe And how can I convince other people to believe it? No, 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 no. That's not what this is about. This is about surveying different options and delineating positives and counters to those positions. This is also not comprehensive. I'm not intending in this one episode (laughs) 
to faithfully and completely delineate all the possible justifications for willfully obeying a governing authority. I'm merely presenting a few options with reasoning and counters in the hopes that it might spur you to think about this question faithfully yourself. Perhaps in the future, there will be more options presented. Who knows? But right now, right now, we're just going to discuss, or at least present, three possible justifications for government. Three possible justifications for willfully obeying an authority. The first one that I want to cover right now has grown particularly in acceptance, especially among people whom I would call, or who might be called, left-leaning progressives. And that would be the notion of a popular vote. I don't think I need to recount the fact that the current president of the United States lost the popular vote. And, given his response, he seemed to believe that popular approval was a big deal, at least in responding to people who claimed that he had lost the popular vote. So in a certain sense, maybe it's not just left-leaning progressives who believe this. Maybe it's populists in general. Populists in general seem to favor this concept of a popular vote. And what do I mean by that? I mean, namely, that you take a wide-ranging vote and whatever receives the majority voting then becomes policy or practice or a leader. So that's what I mean by that. A popular vote. You propose something. Whatever receives the majority of approval becomes standard. That may seem like a really good idea. For example, if you do that, if you propose things according to a popular vote, it's guaranteed that the majority of people who vote will get what they want. It is guaranteed. If you put out a, a, a referendum, a proposal, an amendment, whatever you want to call it, if a majority of people, if 55% if of people, or even 50.5% approve of something, 50.5% of the people will be happy with it. They will get what they want. In other words, a bigger group of people will always get exactly what they want if something is put to a popular vote. 
The only problem with that, and it is a significant problem, is that if the majority always gets what they want, the sizable minority never gets what they want. If a majority of people always get what they want, a sizable minority do not. In other words, if you think popular voting is a good process, you have to start asking yourself, do people in the minority matter? Okay, so that's, that's one possible reason for a popular vote and a counter to it. Another reason for a popular vote is that people have a say on everything. A law, a politician, a practice, a custom, whatever you put to the vote, people would have a say on it. You would never be able to counter that by saying, well, I didn't get a choice. Well, you did get a choice. That's why we voted, right? Now, the counter to that is that if people have to have a say on everything, that is awfully time-consuming. Think about how many things would have to be put to a popular vote in order for it to be the way government functions. Now, you may say, you know, in the United States, Michael, Congress does vote on things all the time, and they take a majority to pass it. Yes, that's true, but we also have a House and a Senate. We also have ways to bargain, ways to argue, ways to persuade, and it's a smaller set of people. It's not, for example, a million, two million, three million people voting on everything all the time. If you think that is the best way to govern a country, your country better be pretty darn small, and you'd better have a lot of things not to vote on for that to work. But people do have a say in everything. Okay, so that's one, that's another, that's a second reason for governing by popular vote. A third reason, somewhat related, but nevertheless a separate reason, is that everyone's opinions would be heard. If you put everything to a popular vote, no one would be able to say, I'm not going to obey this because I wasn't given a chance to express my opinion. It's not just that they get a vote. It's that their opinion comes out through their vote. That is the third nuance, third reason someone might propose 
for putting everything to a popular vote. It's not just that they can tick a box. It's that in ticking that box, in order to be able to make a choice, you have to have an opinion to make that choice, and therefore everyone's opinions have free exercise under that basis of government. The counter to that is, it's not quite clear that everyone's opinions would be authentic. And here's what I mean by that. Especially in the United States, given the last presidential election, we've had a lot of discussion and a lot of probing into just how authentic people's opinions and votes were. The fact is that your opinion can be manipulated. My opinion can be manipulated. Your opinion right now could be different in six months' time. What do you do then? Do you, do you go through a brand new popular voting process every six months? That's not a lot of stability. How would anything get accomplished? And if you find out that your opinion was manipulated, say by only highlighting certain portions of information instead of others, and then you found out later that given the full scope of facts or full scope of information, your opinion would be quite different, what do you do then? So even though your opinion has been heard through the voting process, that may not actually be what you want. Interesting, isn't it? Okay, so those are some reasons and some counters for basing rightful governing on a popular vote or a popular voting mechanism. The second possible basis would be very opposed to the popular voting process. We're going to go to the other side now. We're going to talk about something that's usually in favor with... Uh, those people or those groups or those, those uh, political philosophers who don't quite see the basis in popularity, who rather see governing foundations in power, pure, unmitigated, unchecked, free, exercise of power by one person or a group of people. In other words, autocratic power. Autocratic power. Is autocratic power 
really the legitimate basis for allowing people to willfully obey authority. Just like the mechanism of popular voting, this has its pros and its cons. If you allow one person or group of people to make all the decisions in government, that decision-making can be pretty efficient. Pretty efficient. One person making all the decisions, they can make them like that. They don't have to consult anybody. They don't have to go through a process. They don't have to put it to a vote every time. They can just make a decision. Boom. Done. Now, if you're someone who values efficiency, that's quite appealing. The counter to that is that efficiency is not always beneficial. Efficiency just allows someone to do something quickly. It doesn't mean that they're doing it wisely or beneficially for the population. In fact, anyone who believes that they can just make decisions might get a little, what's the phrase, drunk on power? They might end up prioritizing their own will over the will of the people they govern. They might prioritize speed in the decision process over the worth or long-term efficacy of their decisions. Yes, okay, that may be true, says someone who believes that autocratic power is, is legitimate. However, they don't just decide things efficiently. The people they govern have a stable leadership identity. They know who their leader is. They know what to expect in some sense. Even if that autocrat is sometimes capricious, over time you begin to expect that capriciousness. So there's stability in the position. You don't have to go through a process to figure out who's next. You don't have to worry about things being undone and redone. It's stable. It's predictable. Stability allows economic growth, for example, they might argue. That can be appealing, too. I mean, think about it. If your life were not necessarily predictable, some people don't like predictability, but if it were stable, if you knew that you could count on the most fundamental part of your life, or parts of your life, it would be easier for you to get things done that you want done. Or so the argument goes. 
If that's true, however, one thing seems to be neglected in having quote-unquote stable leadership. And that would be that the direction the country goes in is more important than the identity of the leader being stable. For example, you know that you will always be driving a 2004 Jetta. 2004 Jetta. You'll be able to know that and predict it. That doesn't mean that you can't drive the Jetta off a cliff. Does that make sense? No. The direction the car goes matters more than the fact that you can always know for sure you'll be driving a Jetta. If you knew that the steering on that Jetta was so bad that it was going to not be able to turn and you would just go off the road, surely you would be willing to change cars. So, stable leadership identity may not be enough to legitimize autocratic power as a basis for government. Okay, okay, someone might say. Yes, but even if the leadership is stable, that also means that policy is consistent. Take a look at Brexit. Once you change the rules, once you threaten to undo and remake everything, government, economy, personal living, all of it becomes, well, chaos. You don't get to just constantly change policy and expectations and expect that to produce constantly good results. If you want constantly beneficial results, your policy has to stay consistent. Ah, ah, but... If the policy is consistent, it's the same as the leadership staying consistent. It may produce a certain amount of good, but if something else would produce more good, you would not be able to do that thing. Again, if you have consistent policy, and that policy does not produce the most good, then you will never be able to do the things that would produce the most good. You would be stuck doing something that wouldn't necessarily be producing the most good. You would have no freedom to change. And another thing that autocratic rule ends up presenting as a form of government is constant threats of revolt. 
if you want stability, then the best way to produce stability might not be having a stable leader with stable, consistent policy. Because the lack of freedom to change means people get restless. And when people get restless, they change things anyway. So, that covers autocratic power as a basis for governing authority. One last one that I want to cover, just for today, this is like <laughs> rightful governing of the state part one. Who knows when part two will be, I don't know. Come up with your own ideas, pitch them to me. We'll have fun with it. The third one that I want to cover, just as a review, we've covered popular voting, we've covered autocratic power. The third one that I want to present is somewhat novel, and that would be practical ability. How many times have you heard someone approve of a leader or a politician or a CEO or whoever and say, this person's great. They just know how to get things done. They just get things done. They just accomplish things. They produce. I'm willing to let this person stay in power because they produce. That's pretty appealing. I must admit, Personally, I find that more appealing than the previous two options. Don't get me wrong, I like popular voting, and I like someone who can just, you know, take control every once in a while and just do what needs to be done. But this idea of practical ability, of someone saying, I'm just going to get this done because it needs to be done, and I don't mean that in a controlling way either. I mean someone who can use a system, who can work within the system. How many times have you heard that phrase? Well, I'm going to change this from within. I'm going to work the system. Right? That works. It works. Therefore, it's right for that person to continue to be in authority. One positive to that is that it's based on proficiency. As we've said, they can get things done. They, have a, they, ha, they can show proficient ability to accomplish whatever needs to be accomplished. Laws, policies practices, enforcement, whatever it is. They know what they're doing. They can do it. That's a positive. The only problem with that, maybe it's not the only problem, but one problem with it, is that just being able to use a system doesn't mean that you're getting the real person as your leader. What do I mean by that? 
What I mean is, if you can imagine, um, in the United States we have this thing that we've been back and forth about for like the last 30, 40 years called pork barrel spending. You may have heard the phrase, but you may not know what it is. I may not even know what it is, but you can correct me later. The bottom line to it is, one politician says to another, I'll vote for your policy if you allow me to do X, Y, or Z over here. So I'll approve of your funding if you give me some funding out of that to do what I want to do. What that does is it adds money to a federal deficit or spending. Some of that personal requesting may not even be necessary. But you know what? It gets things done. But is that really what you want? Do you really want someone who knows how to work the system? Because working a system may not end up with the best net result for the entire governed people. Imagine someone in Pawtucket saying, we need roads. And so their representative says, well, I'll vote for your, uh, I'll vote for your military spending bill if you give me some back money over here to take care of the roads in Pawtucket. But a sizable portion of the country now has to deal with continued war, which may be unjust, simply because this person in Pawtucket, this representative, gets money that he or she wants to fix their own constituents' needs. You can see how that might create a problem with trustworthiness or effective legislation or moral basis for a piece of legislation. So, you may be good at getting things done within a system, but that doesn't mean that the system is good. And it doesn't mean that the person working the system ends up being the best person for the job. Okay, okay, someone who's in favor of practical ability might argue, yes, okay, I see that, but things still get achieved. You still get things done. Is it better to have more things done or less things done? It's kind of a zero-sum argument, but nevertheless, it shares some things with the popular vote. A majority of things get done. Why isn't that better? One reason why it might not be better is because the trade-offs being made could outweigh present accomplishments. What I mean by that is, quite simply, 
just doing things to get them done now might have severe consequences in the future. You can imagine someone saying, well, I'm, I'm the right person to govern you because I have an ability to get things done right now. Yes, but the things you're doing right now lead to worse things in the future. It would be better if you did not do those things. It would be better if you did not produce too much right now. It would be better if you produced less or could work the system with less ability, actually. Because in doing less, in using it less, in the future, policy is more stable. Okay? So those are a few reasons for practical ability. But another one, one that's slightly similar, but still a reason in its own right, is that if you're looking to base someone's legitimate authority on a practical ability to get things done, that forces a track record. That compels anyone looking to be a leader in government to say, this is what I've done. So that when you vote for people, you are voting for them based on results. You're, ba you're basing your opinion, your trust in their ability to lead on provable results. I don't know... This, this is a legitimate thought here, on the fly, but still legitimate. I don't know anybody I've ever voted for who has not been able to prove that they can do things that I want done. I don't look at candidates and say, well, you, you do nothing that I want. You must be the right person for me to vote for and put in office. You deserve to be put in office because you do nothing that I want. Who says that? So judging a candidate or a leader based on practical ability compels that person or anybody willing to seek the office to prove that they can do things that the voters want. You can't get things done, you're out. You do the wrong things, you're out. You keep screwing up, you do nothing that we want, everything's wrong, you're impeached, you're out, done. That's a sizable, forceful argument, especially now. Of course, as you've come to expect now, there is a counter to that. And that is namely, where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line when someone fails to produce? 
Can there be an objective line for that? Can you say, well, first mistake, you're out. That's a bit harsh. Okay, third mistake, you're out. What would those mistakes have to be? Do you, do you see where this is going? Where is the actual measurable objective line whereby someone would literally fail out of office? It should be argued, or could be argued, that instead of compelling a track record like that, instead of forcing someone to proficiently produce all the time, it would be better, or might be better, to allow those in authority to learn the process of getting things done. Oh, you, okay, you've made a mistake. Okay, how are you going to fix that? See? So it's not just about the track record now, which means it's not just about their practical ability to get things done. It's also about their humility. It's about their willingness to learn from their mistakes. That's more important than the ability, per se. Being willing to say, I didn't get this right, and not facing the threat of immediate removal might be better in some cases. And moreover, not only does forcing a track record neglect a learning curve for someone in authority, it also encourages those in authority or those seeking that authority to spin their track record. It is very difficult right now to look at either a politician or someone who seeks to be a politician, look at their track record that they propose, this is why I'm a good leader, this is why I deserve your vote, and see anything but positive things. And even those positive things may not exactly be as they are phrased. Wouldn't you rather have someone who counters practical ability would argue, wouldn't you rather have someone who's honest, someone who doesn't spin, someone who doesn't claim to be perfect, someone who readily admits mistakes as well as positives? Someone you could actually trust? But if you want practical ability alone, if you want practical ability as a foundation, as a justification for governing you, you may never get that. So, interesting concepts, huh? And this, this is why, this is why we're going about this in stages. Because as you can see, even even a part one of basing rightful governance goes for quite a long time. And we only covered three options, popular voting, 
autocratic power, practical ability. That's all we did. There are many, many, many more options. Maybe we'll cover them in time. But as you can see, even though many options exist, they can get complicated. So, maybe rightful governing of the state isn't based on one thing. Maybe it's based on a mixture of different foundations. And even as we experience them, we might need to put a bit of effort into discerning those foundations. Real Philosophy is written and produced by me, Michael Spencer Harmon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Real Philosophy. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send an email to realphilosophypodcast at gmail.com. That's realphilosophypodcast, one word, at gmail.com. You can also look the show up on Twitter at realphilpodcast. Thanks very much. And if you do like the show, Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.